Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Our brain is an amazing organ, and for years, scientists have searched for the cell responsible for our ability to remember faces. It was called the so-called grandmother neuron. Now scientists have published new research in the journal Science about a discovery of cells that link face perception to long-term memory. Today we talk about this discovery and how it could impact future interventions for diseases related to memory like Alzheimer's or another condition you may not have heard of called prosopagnosia or face blindness. Coming up we talk with a Connecticut woman with this condition. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. My first guest on Zoom is Weinrich Freiwald, head of the Laboratory of Neural Systems at the Rockefeller University in New York City. He and his team are credited for the discovery of the grandmother neurons. Weinrich, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I understand that this concept of the grandmother neuron uh, came up uh, in an MIT classroom a long time ago. And now you and your fellow researchers have discovered the grandmother neuron. So talk a little bit about this concept and, and how you got to this point, Vinrick. Yes. Um, so, so the concept originated in 1969, as you said, when an MIT professor, uh, Jerry Letwin, um, talked to his class and made up a story about this Russian neurosurgeon who had a patient obsessed with his mother and to ask the neurosurgeon to heal him from this obsession. The neurosurgeon, being true to his trade, um, would perform a surgery and uh, remove the 18,000 cells in this patient's brain um, that were responsible for him knowing anything about his mother at all. And the surgery was successful. The patient, however, could not know anything about his mother anymore, could not recognize her, um, but was healed of his obsession. Um, this was, of course, you know, a complete invention. Um, nothing like this is ever done. But it was the origin of this idea that in your brain, with its billions and billions of, of nerve cells called neurons that are connected to each other to form this incredibly complicated web, that somewhere inside this brain, you would have cells that would be specifically responsible for your ability to recognize someone that you're personally familiar with or a loved one like your, your grandmother. And so it lived on for 50 years and more um, as a proposal that's something that should exist. Uh, but something that has never been found. And uh, so this is why it was so exciting for us to discover cells that share many of these properties. It's kind of the greatest thing in science if something is predicted to exist for such a long time and no one has seen it. Um, but we also discovered that the properties of these cells are actually quite different from what Jerry Levin and others imagined in their day. Um, and that was exciting. And then the finding was just very clear and very beautiful. And so all of these things together make us really excited about this discovery. Now, I understand in your research, 
a group of neurons in the brains of rhesus monkeys lit up when you showed them photos of their monkey friends. So walk us through when we see a familiar face, what's happening in that part of the brain, Vinrick? Yes, so what happens is you have this very small region in your brain, um, in a part actually that has not been much researched uh, that we know very little about, um, but really only in this one small region you find cells that will be specifically activated not just when you see a face in general or, you know, when you're able to uh, tell the difference between two faces, but very specifically when you see the faces of your loved ones or of people that you've met before and that, that you're very familiar with. Um, so, so these cells combine two properties that are fundamentally different. One is the perceptual property, that is that the cell is responding to an image uh, in this case, an image of a face. And the memory component is that the cells only respond to images of people that you've encountered personally before. And this, this personal encounter is really very important here. We show these pictures thousands and thousands of times. And this is not what these cells want. What the cells want to respond is the picture of someone you encountered in real life that you're highly familiar with, like your grandmother. What does this mean in this last year of the pandemic, Vinrick, when so many of us have been interacting uh, via screens when it comes yeah. to feeling familiar with somebody, as you mentioned? Yes, yeah, so I would think that many of you had had the experience, um, like I had, that you can generate a sense of familiarity with someone that you meet on Zoom, um, even within a few minutes. And it probably has to do with the fact that it's not just pictures that you're seeing, um, but it's a live video, um, that it has to do with the fact that it's not just, you know, images coming in, but also the voice can be heard. And with the fact that there's a consequential interaction, what you're saying now uh, influences what I'm saying. And so you, you realize that I'm responding to uh, what you are saying. And so, so there is a sense of live interaction uh, even if we're physically, you know, hundreds of miles apart from each other. Uh, when you were researching with the monkeys, when they saw a picture versus uh, someone or their monkey friends they saw in person, there was a difference in how their brain reacted, Henrik? Yes, it's completely different. Uh, and this is what was so surprising for us. We have worked on face recognition for 20 years now. And all the face areas we have studied and we discovered they do not really care whether there's a picture of uh, someone you know or someone you don't know. It's all about the physical properties of the face. You know, how big the eyes are, if the forehead is, is big, things like that. That's what the cells and all other face areas care for. But this one extra area um, cares for that also. Um, but in addition, it is essential that you have this personal familiarity. So that's why we think um, that when you are recognizing loved one, when you know that now grandmother's there, that this area is supporting that process. You're hearing on Zoom with me, Vinrick Freiwald, head of the Laboratory of Neural Systems at the Rockefeller University in New York City. He and his team are credited for the discovery of the grandmother neurons, which connects to our vision or recognition with long-term memory. And so the fact that you've discovered this must be very exciting, but talk about the, the long-term implications of this when we think about conditions that are related to memory and memory loss. Yes, uh, we are at the Rockefeller University, and 
at the Rockefeller University, we have this beautiful motto, science for the benefit of humanity. And this is basic research, but when we do basic research, we always have an eye on applications of how we can use this research to better the conditions of, of people who are suffering from sometimes debilitating uh, conditions. Your ability to recognize people that you know, recognizing your loved ones, is really of the core of what makes you human. And so if there's an impairment of that, that is the most devastating experience that anyone can have. An Alzheimer's patient who's not able to recognize her loved ones anymore, and then the loved ones recognizing that they are not recognized anymore. Uh, this is dissolving the social fabric. And so uh, whenever we make a discovery like this into something that's fundamentally human, we're always thinking of applications. And we're actually even thinking right now to, to start a center on the social brain to facilitate the discoveries uh, like this one on our social nature and also applications. So what we are hoping for concretely is that we can devise strategies based on this knowledge uh, specifically that we now have gained uh, to help people with face blindness, to help people uh, with autism spectrum disorder or people with Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative disorders uh, to preserve and maybe improve uh, their ability to specifically recognize the loved ones. Mm, that's really fascinating. So this region where the grandmother neurons are is also the part of the brain that's most affected by these conditions you just mentioned, Venrick? That's right. In particular, Alzheimer's and neurodegenerative disorders. Um, so it's one of the first uh, to be affected. And so therefore, we have to make a great effort to try and preserve these functions. It's devastating enough if you have other difficulties memorizing or, or knowing where you are, but this disconnection from your social world is just really the, the most uh, horrible thing imaginable. How has the scientific community responded to this discovery, Venrick? Oh, with a lot of excitement. So I got a lot of emails <laughs> and um, yeah, a lot of colleagues um, were uh, writing to me because this has been something that's been there for like 50 years and more and uh, but something that has not been seen. And at the same time, it's reflecting new knowledge. We did not find exactly uh, what uh, Jerry Ledwin was imagining, but we found new properties that are you know, very nice and very beautiful and make a lot of sense to us today. So it's a bit of like a relief in the community. Um, ah, we got it. And uh, now we can really understand how, how this is working and how we can, you know, what happens in our brains when we recognize someone that we know. Uh, because of this discovery, uh, can you talk about more about are there particular therapies for patients who have this part of their brain impaired that could help stimulate them, whether it's a particular video game or an app? Exactly. So we're thinking along those lines um, to devise behavioral strategies, um, especially fun ones, you know, that give you a lot of interaction while you are uh, engaged in this, this kind of treatment. Um, we're also thinking about therapies that involve biofeedback, where we would be imaging the brain uh, of a person engaged in this video game, and then use that activation um, in the brain to modify uh, what is on the screen for this person. And so tapping directly into the activity of this one brain area that we discovered uh, would possibly greatly improve um, the effects we can, we can get with this behavioral training. Mm -hmm. You know, earlier, I talked about how our brain is an amazing organ. We we're talking about these grandmother neurons, but I understand that there um, are uh, neuroscientists who've, who've discovered the Jennifer Aniston neuron. There's the concept yeah. of the Darth mm -hmm. Vader neuron. <laughs> Can you talk about what's going on in our brains? 
Yes, so uh, this is a discovery a friend of mine, Rodrigo Kianquiroga, made several years ago in a very different part of the brain. And that discovery has been dominating our way of thinking about how the perception of a face might be linked to long-term memory. And now our finding kind of turns this on the head and then is pointing in a completely different direction. The Jennifer Aniston neuron um, is a neuron that he found that would respond also to pictures of, of Jennifer Aniston's face, um, but it would also respond to um, her voice or maybe just the name uh, written out. And so it is not a visual neuron. Uh, it is not rapidly responding. It's not reliably responding um, to an incoming face stimulus, but it's more related to the concept of this particular person. There's also uh, a Sydney Opera House neuron. So the thinking was that there are neurons that are intermingled in a large region of the brain and that you might discover in, in, in one subject, but never again, because they are very difficult to find and that they would represent concepts of the world that we have formed over time. So they're more related to our knowledge and our cognition. What we have found is perceptual. It's very fast. It's very reliable. It happens every time you're seeing a particular stimulus. And also, these neurons are not distributed. They are concentrated in one part of the brain. And so one, one of the really beautiful things about this is that what your brain is doing when you are uh, familiarizing yourself with a new person, when you're getting to know someone, it is somehow accessing this, this one little region and updating it to form this new uh, memory of, of this one person's face in that particular region. And so, so this is exciting for us as scientists because that really makes it possible for us to understand how that's happening and, and, and how you're learning uh, knowledge about new people. So we've been talking about, uh, again, as you mentioned, when we recognize someone, but also how it ties back to our long-term memory. But how does bias enter into this whole uh, process, Venric? So, yeah, this is something that we don't really understand very well. There are biases in that you're more easily able to recognize some people, but not others. Um, like one particular uh, implication is in the courtroom. Is a lot of uh, very consequential decisions in the courtroom are made based on eyewitness um, uh, testimony. And we now know from uh, exoneration cases where DNA evidence proved without doubt, you know, that wrongful convictions occurred, that in 70% of the cases, there was an eyewitness uh, misidentification happening. And so a lot of these times it can happen uh, because often not a conscious bias, but an inherent uh, bias and inherent ability to recognize some faces better than others. Mm, that's really fascinating. Vinrik Freiwald, thank you so much for joining us today here on Where We Live to talk about this discovery by you and your team at the Rockefeller University in New York City, the so-called grandmother neurons, uh, more than one. Uh, what's next for you, Vinrik, with this discovery? We'd love to know um, how this area does what, what it's doing. We discovered what it is doing. We don't know yet how it is doing what it's doing. What I mean by that is that we had anticipated that this area would build on all the very complex computations and entire network of face areas doing, which we have studied for some 20 years now. But the area is responding so fast that it must have a completely different 
set of inputs that we don't know yet about. Uh, we want to use it as we discussed, you know, to improve uh, conditions like face blindness and uh, Alzheimer's and uh, autism spectrum uh, disorders and, and look into these applications and yeah, really understand how this, how this one region um, supports recognition. What I should emphasize is when you recognize a person, um, this is a, it's a conscious experience. It's an aha moment, it's this Eureka moment where now you know that you recognize this person and often it's a happy moment. So it has an emotional quality to it. So what we think is happening is that this one very small area is igniting activity in a large network of areas. And we would love to know how this network is working, how we then become conscious of the fact that we now recognize grandmother. Well, we'd love to have you back as you and your team continue to research. <laughs> Vinrik, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we've learned about grandmother neurons and how they help our brains connect perception with memory. But how will this discovery help with future interventions and potential treatments of certain conditions like face blindness? We learn more about that coming up and take your questions too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. How good are you at recognizing faces? Some people have a condition called face blindness or prosopagnosia that makes it very difficult to recognize faces or to learn new faces. And those with severe cases even have trouble recognizing their loved ones. For more, joining us on Zoom is Brad Duchesne, professor at Dartmouth, chair of the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences and co-founder of faceblind.org. Brad, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lucy. I used to always tease my husband because he's not good at recognizing faces. I'm much better, but now I think I'm beginning to understand why that is. Do we all have kind of a spectrum of how well we are at recognizing faces, Brad? Yeah, that's that's right. So um, you've got a, a there's a broad range of abilities when it comes to face recognition. So we've mentioned prosopagnosics here earlier in the show. Those are people who have a great deal of difficulty recognizing faces. Um, then there are people at the other end of the spectrum that are called super recognizers who are fantastic when it comes to face recognition. And then there's most of us somewhere in the middle there. Um, some people are, you know, 
above average. Some people are a little below average. Now, I mentioned your co-founder of faceblind.org. Our listeners can go to that website and, and take a, a test, I believe. I think that's what I did the other day, and I, I scored an 8 out of 10. So am I one of these super recognizers, Brad? That 8 out of 10 is not going to do it, Lucy. That's, <laughs> oh, that's man. Good, <laughs> oh, my hopes are dashed, and my husband's going to laugh at me now. Uh, but, but tell us more when we think about people who have face blindness. How common is this? You know, it's going to depend on where you draw the line as to what counts as face blindness. But what we find is that um, if you just ask people about face recognition in daily life, that maybe something, uh, it, the number might be as high as one out of 50 people have face wow. recognition difficulties that regularly affect their daily life. You know, they fail to recognize a neighbor who they actually know pretty well. Um, when they run into them at the grocery store or, you know, they, they don't recognize a coworker. Um, and um, so, you know, it's, it's fairly common. So something like 2% of the population. Wow. Well, someone is with us now on Zoom who has a form of prosopagnosia. A.E. Galp is a startup attorney based in Wexford. A.E., welcome to our show. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. So when did you discover that you had a form of face blindness? Can you talk about um, what it's been like uh, for you? Sure. I did not realize that I had something that had a name until much later in life, um, well into my 30s. But I realized um, once I kind of got more information that the first time that I was sort of smacked in the face with the the daily sort of symptoms of it was when I went off to um, a large university for undergrad and was repeatedly having the experience of having someone walk up to me, um, call me by my name, uh, continue a conversation. It's very clear that we had met um, and talked and my brain was telling me I had never laid eyes on this person in my life. Um, at the time, I just got really good at, at calling people by nondescript, like, hey girl, or what's up dude? Um, you know, sort of friendly terms that didn't reveal. And I think I started building um, my coping skills um, and got used to just sort of picking up conversations that I didn't realize <laughs> I was sort of continuing. Um, at the time, though, I really think I chalked it up to the volume of socializing um, the large number of people that I was sort of coming into contact with on a daily basis. But it was also the first time that I started hearing kind of feedback from my community that I had hurt somebody's feelings or that somebody thought I was aloof or snobbish because I wasn't um, acknowledging them if we would sort of cross paths. And for me, the experience, of course, is that absolutely nothing pings in my brain um, when I'm seeing these people. Um, the, the point in my life when I finally realized I had a, a, something was really a mess, I actually moved from Los Angeles, California, where I had been living for um, over a decade to Prince Edward Island, Canada, which is a tiny community. Um, and right almost from the start, it became clear that I was essentially snubbing all sorts of people that I had interacted with because 
I was unable to recognize them and I was especially unable to recognize them out of context. So perhaps I knew them um, because they were a neighbor or perhaps we attended the same church um, or they were another parent at my children's preschool. If I saw them though at the grocery store or um, at the post office or in anything out of context, I simply would have no awareness that I was seeing somebody that I had met and that I should recognize. Mm -hmm. And then of course, um, there's also a significant winter in Prince Edward Island. So once everyone bundled up with a scarf or even a face mask and a hat pulled over their hair, I lost all of the sort of attendant clues that I really rely on to recognize people like hairstyle or glasses even, perhaps um, a piece of jewelry that they consistently wear, um, just sort of an overall style in their dress. Mm -hmm. All of those were sort of taken away from me. Um, and it was very difficult to navigate because all of a sudden I was keenly aware, I don't know who is around me at any given time. What kind of toll did that take on you, AE? And when did you reach out for help? Well, I'm, I'm someone who really tries to live my life in a way that is the least harmful to literally everyone around me. Um, I sort of take to heart that responsibility to do no harm. And so I am certainly not someone who's looking to hurt anybody's feelings. And, um, and so that part, that piece of it was really difficult, right? So these were people who I would love to recognize um, and that concept that when you do in fact recognize someone, you know, it's lighting up all sorts of like pleasant sensations in your brain. I recognize that because when I do actually recognize someone, I'm <laughs> delighted um, that I have recognized them. It's almost like they sort of glow and stand out. Um, and I really try to deeply attune to people when I meet them. Um, and so there, there was a whole process of, of, you know, first sort of being critical of my own um, sense, right? Am I not tuning in? Am I not paying close enough attention? Um, that sort of desire to sort of figure out a way to sharpen that, thinking that it was something I was doing wrong, um, I think led me to, you know, researching online and finding faceblind.org. Um, which Professor Duchesne um, is the co-founder of, getting information, finding out that they're studying this um, and, and wanting to help participate in that. Uh, Brad Duchesne again is with us, Professor at Dartmouth, as A.E. mentioned, co-founder of faceblind.org. Uh, something A.E. had said early on was that, you know, she had, she had a way of, of coping or tools to help recognize uh, people when she noted that she was having trouble recognizing faces. And so is that common that people just chalk it up as, well, this is the way I am, and, and they don't know that, that they have this particular condition, Brad? Yeah, that's very common. So we tend to assume that our cognitive or our perceptual abilities um, are similar to everybody else's. Um, and so I hear stories from prosopagnosics who say, you know, before I found out about prosopagnosia, um, I would watch movies in which um, there would be a lineup uh, because there'd been a crime committed. And the 
character in the movie would pick out the person who um, had committed the crime. And I thought, come on, that's absurd. Nobody could do that sort of thing. Um, and so that that's, that's very normal that A um, felt that, you know, everybody else was just like her. Um, and so we, what we tend to hear is that um, a lot of people with prosopagnosia will rely on particular um, non-face parts of people to recognize them. So the hair, like A.E. mentioned, um, or they'll, they'll recognize the voice when they, rec- when they encounter somebody. Um, but those ways of recognizing people just aren't as effective as the face is. And so um, they're going to struggle when they use other, those other cues to person recognition. We're learning about face blindness today. If you have a question, you can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, with the community of people that have reached out to you and your colleagues, Brad, at faceblind.org, do you find that some people are experiencing anxiety or depression because they're getting these reactions from people? Like, why don't you remember me? And they feel like these they're, they're alienating people, even though they don't mean to. Yeah, absolutely. People take it very personally when we don't recognize them. Um, people consider that it's a sign that they're not important enough to us for us to recognize them. Um, and so, um, you know, if you fail to recognize, you know, somebody you've even met just a few times, they don't like it. And then imagine, you know, failing to recognize your boss in the elevator. It's going to cause you real problems. Right. Uh, A. Galp, I wanted to go back to you. Again, this is a a woman based in West Hartford. She's a startup attorney who has prosopagnosia or face blindness. Can I ask what it was like for you when you were dating uh, if you, again, have trouble recognizing uh, people who are not super close to you? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Um, It's so funny because it's really not something I thought much about, although I, I do think it's interesting if you sort of lined up uh, everyone I've ever dated, it would make no sense. <laughs> I certainly don't have a type when it comes to looks um, because that is just not significant to me. Um, when I meet someone, I I tune in very carefully to um, sort of extra, almost extrasensory um, feelings that I'm getting from them, sort of like their level of receptivity, their openness, um, whether there's a sense of tension about them or whether they're calm and content, um, I tend to respond um, significantly to that. So especially, um, I would say, in dating relationships, how this, how this person um, makes me feel. And um, when it comes to recognition, I will say it's, it can be a little... Um, dicey early on. Um, I will look at photographs of someone repeatedly, almost trying to uh, learn to recognize them in between um, having an opportunity to spend time with them in person. Um, I can, I I definitely um, in early dating have had that pang of anxiety, like walking into a restaurant, say, if I need to go meet someone, having that feeling of, I hope I recognize them, right? As opposed to, (laughs) it's easier if they pick you up, (laughs) you know, it's the right person. Mm. (laughs) 
Well, thank you for sharing that uh, part of your story, A.E., with us. Again, you can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Brad Duchesne, I'm not sure if I asked you this question. I don't remember. But when we talk about uh, this particular condition, and you said one in 50 uh, may have some form of face blindness, is it something that people are born with, developmental, or is it something that's acquired, like a brain injury? Well, you you can both be born with it or you can acquire it due to brain injury. And we were aware of the type of prosopagnosia that people um, acquire through brain injury for, for many years. Um, and that's because it's fairly easy to see. Somebody's got normal face recognition, then mm-hmm. um, let's say they have a stroke, um, and then they can no longer recognize people. It's like um, night and day. On the other hand, when people um, develop the condition, you know, they've got nothing to compare normal. They don't can't compare their poor face recognition to previously normal face recognition. Um, and as a result of the, the difficulty of, of noticing it, it took us a long time to even recognize that what we call developmental prosopagnosia was a condition. Um, it really wasn't until the late 90s um, that it became obvious to a number of researchers that there are a lot of people out there who have never suffered any brain damage and yet have a really tough time um, recognizing people. It was the internet that that helped us um, realize how many people were out there. In fact, it was a group of prosopagnosics who first created um, an online group where they were talking about their difficulties. And only after that did researchers get in touch with some of them. Well, that's really interesting. We have a, a caller, Zach in Norwich, with a question. Zach, go ahead. Hi, yeah, thanks for taking my call. Uh, so my question was for AE uh, or, you know, anybody that has input on this, I, I was just kind of wondering, you know, if, if every time, you know, you see somebody and you, and you have, you know, prosopagnosia, if you are kind of rediscovering their face, if you're, you know, you meet somebody and again, you're, you're, you haven't picked up on any of the cues yet, um, you know, and you're kind of rediscovering that. And, and again, that applies to like, you know, if I wake up every morning and I'm next to my wife, who I think is beautiful and I see her every day, my, rediscovering this beautiful person next to me? Am I like kind of relearning their face every day or is it, you know, something that, uh, you know, it's, it's just more of like a Picasso painting. Like you can't really, you know, make heads or tails of it. Mm, good question, Zach. AE, did you want to respond to that? What do you see when you look at someone? It's so hard to know what I see because, because again, it's so hard to know how to describe an inner experience, um, that is not shared, right? I, I do think Zach's on to something though. There is a sense of um, presence that I'm almost forced into. And I will say I am often surprised even when I see someone I recognize by how they look, right? So there's, there's that sense of, there is a bit of that, oh yeah, um, this person has like very sparkly eyes or the way that their, you know, their face lights up and looks like sunshine when they smile. Like that is very common. I know when I look at my children on a daily basis, there is that sense both of recognition and of surprise. Like, oh my gosh, this they're so beautiful, right? So um, gosh, if that's unique to those of us with face blindness, that feels like a blessing. Mm-hmm. Brad Duchesne, did you want to add to that? Well, I just wanted to, 
elaborate a little on what AE said about sort of what she experiences when she sees a face. And of course, I can't get inside of AE's head to know what, what it is that she's seeing, but we've got some data um, that suggests um, that when people with prosopagnosia see an upright face, it's it's kind of similar to the experience that people with normal face recognition have when they look at an upside down face. Um, and I say that because if we run uh, perceptual tests, we'll find that the people with uh, normal face recognition score about the same with those upside down faces as prosopagnosics do with upright faces. And when you look at an upside down face, you can tell it's a face, you can see the features, but you just can't sort of put it together in the same way um, that you can if it's upright. And so if I were to show you, say, famous faces and they were upside down, you might be able to work out who it is by looking at it for, say, five to 10 seconds. But it's not going to be that instantaneous recognition that you experience uh, when you see a, the face upright. Mm. Uh, A.E., Brad had mentioned earlier some people with face blindness, you know, it can cause them real problems if they're in the elevator and they don't recognize that their boss is standing next to them. What has it been like for you working, and especially in this pandemic when, you know, for a long time, none of us were seeing people in person? I have had a handful of experiences um, that have been particularly poignant in the workforce. Um, one, when I was sort of much younger um, working at a law firm, and I mistook someone who who is actually very, very dear to me um, for someone else in an elevator, that exact experience. And it's just crushing. You want to, <laughs> you want to disappear, which in an elevator is truly not possible. Um, and then much more recently, um, early on in a, in a job, a position that I was sort of new to a few years ago, absolutely mistook the CEO of our public company um, because he had a set of distinctive glasses. Um, and when I met him, that was what I took in. And the day um, that I had a chat with him, not knowing who I was speaking with, he wasn't wearing his glasses. And you have those moments where someone, you know, someone later is like, what did he say? And I'm like, what do you mean? Um, they're like, well, what did the CEO say? I'm like, that was the CEO. <laughs> Good thing, um, you know, you develop those coping skills to sort of um, try to always remain polite and pleasant. Um, I think um, more recently I have joined a workforce that's entirely remote. So it's sort of embraced this brand new way of working. Um, and it's an absolute relief to me because all of our all of our interactions as a remote workforce are very intentional and deliberate. So again, kind of like the date coming to the door um, and sort of knowing like the person who rings the bell is going to be the person <laughs> I'm intending to meet. The person I've set up my Google Meet with or my Zoom with is going to be this person, right? I'm not going to be surprised. Um, I get to spend a lot of time um, just focusing in on learning the details of this person. I tend when I meet someone to elicit a lot of, I, I suppose, unique details about their life because that's one of the main things that I'm using to remember somebody by, right? So um, I will find out unique details about them and that I can always remember, even if I can't remember the face. 
Um, I am a huge fan of working remotely for this reason, the sort of the mental load and the anxiety, that sort of baseline level of anxiety, I can set aside um, and that, you know, clears up a lot more space um, to really think about the work. Uh, before we run out of time, Brad Duchesne, I wanted to go back to you, Professor Dartmouth, co-founder of faceblind.org. Earlier, we were learning about this discovery of the grandmother neurons. Uh, how do you think this discovery could help uh, researchers better understand prosopagnosia or face blindness? Um, th- there's a couple things it does. Um, so face recognition depends on sort of the coordinated activity of a number of different brain areas. And so what that suggests is that there are going to be a number of different types of prosopagnosia that occur. So if you've got sort of a malfunction in one of these areas, it's going to cause one type of prosopagnosia, a malfunction, another is going to cause a different type. Um, The identification of this area that's um, engaged only by familiar faces tells us, well, here's another type of prosopagnosia that's going to exist. These people should have normal, the normal ability to recognize unfamiliar faces, but when it comes to familiar faces, that's where they're going to struggle um, relative to other people. Um, and so that tells us about this other type. What it also suggests is that when we're developing interventions um, to try to improve face recognition um, in prosopagnosia or autism or whatever um, condition um, you're focused on, is that we should be using familiar faces um, to try to engage these processes that Bindrick's team identified. Um, because if we only use unfamiliar faces, and that's the way um, nearly all of the interventions that have been developed so far work, um, we're not uh, we're not engaging the entire system. Brad Duchesne, again, is professor at Dartmouth and chair of the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences, co-founder of faceblind.org. Brad, I understand you've got upcoming research to recruit people with face blindness from Connecticut and other parts of New England. If our listeners go to faceblind.org, can they learn more there? Yeah, they can. We would love to hear from um, people who think that they might have difficulties with face recognition because uh, we're gearing up right now for a large-scale study, and we're going to be recruiting from people um, from through, throughout New England and maybe even further afield. So we would love to hear from interested participants. Well, thank you, Brad, for your time. Thank you. Also, A.E. Gaup, a startup attorney in West Hartford who has face blindness, thank you so much for sharing part of your story. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And I hope um, if folks are listening and this sounds like someone they know, they're able to extend a little grace to that person. Yes, a good reminder. Thank you. Coming up, our ability to recognize familiar faces starts at a very young age. We'll talk to a pediatrician about how babies' brains develop. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been learning about the cells in our brains that connect vision with long-term memory. It got us thinking about how babies' brains develop. When do they begin recognizing faces? Joining us now with some insight is Dr. Robert Ketter, developmental behavioral pediatrician at Connecticut Children's, also an assistant professor of pediatrics at UConn School of Medicine. Dr. Ketter, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. 
So generally, when do babies begin to identify faces? I have two children, and so it was quite a delight when they were babies, and you could see their faces light up when they were looking at me or my husband. It is exciting to see babies' faces light up, and and that's for good reason, too, because that's how they're starting to take in the world. Um, We want to remember that when when babies are born, they're kind of nearsighted, so newborn infants can really only see about 8 to 12 inches away from where they are, so that's the perfect distance to be held and cuddled and and kind of have that that real FaceTime as opposed to digital FaceTime with your parent. but we see that that children can start identifying and showing preference for their parents um, at three months of age. Oh, that's really interesting. And what about the preference of faces of other people in their in their families? Um, well, we see that there's that preference for um, a mother, for example, over a stranger from research studies at around three months. Um, we can see that over the course of a year, uh, that depending on how frequent somebody's around in the family um, and gets to see the the baby or infant, um, will depend on how quickly they get to know them. Uh, but we see that um, around six to nine months, they're definitely able to discriminate and understand who other other faces are. And so when we think about you know, all the different people they may encounter, when you look at babies, when do they start showing preference for things like gender and racial preferences? Um, we can actually see from some research studies that uh, infants at three months old aren't really starting to show gendered or racial preferences, but that starts to change a little bit over time by four or five and six months of age. So um, children will start showing preference for people who look like their mother or whom they have frequent contact with. Um, And this is an area that uh, other researchers are looking into to really seeing if there is more diverse exposure early on, how this might result in an ability to remember faces of um, different ethnic groups in comparison to those than the one the child identifies from. Well, that's really interesting. So you were just saying that um, if babies are see many different types of faces, that it will help them later in life with identifying different facial features and different racial groups? That is a current theory. And um, uh, we know that babies love looking at faces. So it's kind of a an opportunity, but something that we're, we're already doing in pediatrics, where we encourage kids and parents to look at faces and look at picture books of faces as well. And when we think about just helping uh, babies and children in their development, we live in a multiracial society. Are there uh, suggestions where parents can go to not only promote literacy, but also uh, the, the wide range of people that they will encounter? Well, I think the most important thing that any parent can do with their child is really spend that time and engage. Um, children learn so much. And part of the reason that babies are primed to to look at faces, we think, is because it's really where you start. You start to hear sounds from your parents. You start to see um, uh, mouth movements, eye movements, facial expressions. We start to see what we call a social smile emerge at at two months old, and that's where if you smile at your baby, they look back at you and smile. And that becomes what we call a a serve and return model where kids learn based off of that back and forth interaction with adults. And that's one of the first steps that we do in terms of helping that building block of language and social skills and, and facial recognition amongst other things. 
you know, one of my uh, daughter's favorite books when she was a baby was a book of baby faces doing all sorts of different emotions. So what are they what are they seeing when they look at those books that makes them drawn to the drawn to these types of pictures? Well, just learning to read those expressions is a real, real base ability, right, to have that social emotional connection and engagement. Um, we know that babies love looking at faces, and that's why uh, through programs like Reach Out and Read, where we give books to children starting at six months old in their pediatric well-child visit, um, that we start with a baby book on faces, and they get to look at that and smile and enjoy and see all those different expressions. And listeners can go to reachoutandread.org uh, to learn more about those kinds of baby books and to be able to uh, use them in their family. Uh, Dr. Ketter, before we let you go, what was your reaction to the discovery of these grandmother neurons and the implications as we uh, learn more about how our brains work? Uh, sure. I mean, I think that this is, uh, for lack of a better term, a really cool study. Um, as uh, someone who started studying developmental psychology in college, uh, a lot of what we've learned is through pattern watching and what we call inductive theory, where people would watch and see, oh, children seem to pick up things in a certain order or sequence. Let's call that milestones. But it's really neat because now we're getting all of the cool scientific technology um, Dr. like Dr. Freiwald used in his study to kind of pick out the parts of the brain that are doing these things. And um, that's still a long way away from clinical applications, but it's really neat to see the science starting to validate some of the patterns that we've noticed early on and also helping us rethink some of the patterns that we might have gotten wrong in the past. Well, Dr. Robert Ketter, a developmental and behavioral pediatrician at Connecticut Children's, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Sujata Srinivasan. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can learn more about the show. Just download Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. 